Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. And Sarah Custer-Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history. Coming up, the discovery of a viral source of hypertension. High blood pressure affects up to 50% of people over the age of 65 in Western countries like the UK. But up until now, we really haven't had any ideas as to what causes the majority of those cases. 90% of them are said to be idiopathic. We don't know what does this. How a new super-dense deuterium could lead us closer to fusion power. Some of these atoms are falling apart. The bond lengths must be only about 2.3 picometers, which is equivalent of a material with a density of about 130,000 times that of water. So a cubic metre would weigh 130,000 tonnes. And how plants and bees stick together like Velcro. When they were on the smooth flowers um, held at a, a vertical angle, they were sliding around, they couldn't keep their place, they had to beat their wings really to stay on the flower while they were feeding. Meanwhile, on the rough petals, the bees found a foothold and they could settle down, they stopped beating their wings, and that's really important because it saves them lots of energy. Plus, we'll be hearing about World Hepatitis Day, and Sarah Custer-Perry takes us back to 1927 and the death of climatologist Edward Bruckner. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have suggested that a common virus could be a common cause of high blood pressure. Now, high blood pressure affects up to 50% of people over the age of 65 in Western countries like the UK. But up until now, we really haven't had any ideas as to what causes the majority of those cases. 90% of them are said to be idiopathic. We don't know what does this. So... What a group of researchers in America have done, and this is a guy called Clyde Crumpacker, who's based at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in America. He and his team have been investigating something that scientists have had their eye on for a little while. And this is a virus called cytomegalovirus, CMV. Now, CMV is a very common infection. The prevalence goes up with age. In other words, the older you are, the more likely you are to have caught it. And what's important about CMV is that it causes a lifelong infection. Once you've actually caught the virus, it finds a way to persist in the body for the rest of your life. It's a member of the herpes virus family. What this group of researchers did was to infect mice with a mouse equivalent of CMV, called murine CMV, and compare their blood pressure afterwards. And when they took a group of mice infected them and then looked at their blood pressure, they found that in the infected animals the blood pressure was significantly higher afterwards than before they infected them. So that's high blood pressure, but what about other aspects of arterial disease? Well, what they then did was to do the same experiment, but they put the animals on a high-fat diet. This is the rodent equivalent of junk food, essentially. And what they found is that the animals that were on, infected with CMV and fed junk food developed signs of early arterial disease they began to clog up their arteries with fatty deposits showing that the infection seems to make arteries more vulnerable to getting damaged and then the build up of things like cholesterol so what's going on well the researchers studied the blood vessels of these mice to try and find out why they were seeing these effects and some interesting patterns emerged they found that the virus was establishing a persistent infection in the walls of their blood vessels, but also it was increasing the levels of various inflammatory genes. IL-6 is one of them, another one called TNF-alpha, and another gene called MCP-1. Now, these have been linked in the past to vascular damage, things that can cause injury to blood vessels. And there was also a very interesting finding to emerge, and that was that they also found high levels of two genes called renin and angiotensin, and these are key players in the long-term regulation of blood pressure. 
So you could say, well, that's all very nice in mice, but is this relevant to humans? Well, to test that, what they then did was to get samples of umbilical cords because they have blood vessels in them too, and they're therefore a very good way of studying the human situation without actually having to infect people with these viruses. So they took babies' umbilical cords, infected them with CMV, and found exactly the same changes taking place in these umbilical cords. And so this suggests that CMV could be a key player in causing high blood pressure and therefore the next step will be to examine adults in the population we know that people carry this virus but try and watch what happens to them after they catch the virus and then see if they do go on to develop hypertension or high blood pressure because it's a major cause of heart attacks and strokes every single year so finding out ways to tackle the problem is really a priority that paper if you want to read about it is in plos pathogens this week dave so would this mean that in the future you might be able to make a vaccine for it or just or could you do anything with someone who's already infected? Well, they are looking at making CMV vaccines. The problem is that it's quite tricky. People have tried to make anti-herpes vaccines for quite a while and it's quite hard to prevent people from getting infected. But you might be able to damp down the activity of the virus once you've got it. But we do have drugs that will stop CMV. There's a drug called gancyclovir, which does target CMV and stop it growing. And it might be that intervening in people with high blood pressure with these drugs might make a difference and I guess that's one of the key questions they'll have to look at next. Thanks. Uh, now for a long time scientists have been interested in hydrogen um, not just because it's the simplest and smallest atom in the universe it's the most common atom in the universe and it's the element which fuels all of the stars in the universe. Um, this is by a process of nuclear fusion which involves reacting light atomic nuclei such as hydrogen or its isotopes deuterium and tritium together to form heavy, heavier elements. The problem is that to get their nuclei to react you have to get them very very close together and they repel one another so it's very very difficult to get a decent rate of reaction you either have to use a very very high temperature or get a very high density which is difficult because hydrogen's a gas and compressing it gets very difficult to get these ridiculously high densities you need for this reason scientists have been interested in finding other forms of hydrogen which are much more dense one has been known for long about for 10 or 20 years um, it's called metallic hydrogen um, this is thought to be exact uh, exist in the center of planets such as jupiter and it has a density about that of water now Researchers in Gothenburg in Sweden have been splitting up um, deuterium molecules using catalyst and electric field and studying what's produced in the sort of gas by firing a laser into it. This laser will rip off some electrons from a pair of atoms and these atoms then fly apart so they repel one another. And by measuring how fast these fly apart, you get some idea of how close they were to start with. And um, they've been doing this and they've found some very interesting results some of these atoms are flying apart the bond lengths must be only about 2.3 picometers which is equivalent of a material with a density of about 130,000 times that of water so a cubic meter would weigh 130,000 tons so this is some kind of special form of deuterium this is not normal deuterium this is not what you would normally find there's something else knocking around in there very rarely then yeah they think something very if it, if it is what they think it is it's something very bizarre quantum mechanically is happening possibly what's happening is the electron normally in a um, substance in a solid you have all the um, nuclei in a lattice and then the electrons are flying around them they think what might be happening is all the electrons are sitting in a lattice and the nuclei are flying about and um, because nuclei have got much more momentum that means their wavelength is much smaller um, a quantum mechanical wavelength that means the whole thing can be a lot denser and a lot smaller but that must be good because if you've got something that's already a lot denser, if you want to do fusion reactions with it, you've got to work less hard to get it close together to fuse 
than you would otherwise do. That's right. You don't have to put in the energy to get them that close together. They're much more likely to hit each other. So, again, they've only made minute quantities of it so far. It's only lasted na- less than nanoseconds. But it might, it's very interesting. It might be a way forward with fusion. So one hopes then that uh, you just have to find a way of making lots of this stuff and then we may have a, a killer fusion fuel for the future. Or maybe not a killer, just a very good one. <laughs> I think that might be the challenge. Though. We'll see. I'm going to take things back down to earth now and to the flowers and the bees. If we look around in the the plant world, we see all sorts of wonderful, colourful flowers that have evolved into great shapes and beautiful colours and smells and things. And a lot of that comes down to their interrelationship with insects because lots of insects rely on plants for their source of food and the plants rely very much on the insects to carry their genes around for them, that pollen, to go and pollinate other flowers. And up until now, there's been a bit of a question in the plant world and that is why why do some insect pollinated flowers have their petals covered in tiny little cells that shaped a bit like pyramids and until now we haven't been quite sure exactly what they're for although we've had ideas but now Beverly Glover from Cambridge University publishing in the journal Current Biology has led a team of botanists who found a solution to what these little little cells on the tops of uh, petals are for and quite simply, they're to help bees get a toehold. It's quite simple and really rather elegant. What they did was they went and made artificial epoxy resin flowers that look apparently almost exactly the same as real flowers. These things, you know, they're not quite the same as plastic flowers you see sitting around in a in a dusty hotel lobby. These are actually wonderful things that look very like the real thing. And they made some with and some without these cone-shaped, pyramid-shaped cells on their surface. And they put sugar solution inside these flowers. And then they let the, a load of bumblebees go in the laboratory to see which ones they prefer to go to. And what they found was actually that when the petals were laid out horizontally, the bees didn't really have much of a preference for the rough or the smooth petals. And they visited both of them about about half the time. But when the petals were sloped at a steeper angle up until they were actually vertical, the bees preferentially visited the rough petals rather than the smooth ones. And their team then went and used high-speed films to watch these foraging bees and see what was going on. And they actually found out that it was indeed that their feet weren't getting a grip when they were on the smooth flowers um, held at a a vertical angle. Um, They were sliding around, they couldn't keep their place, they had to beat their wings really to stay on the flower while they were feeding. Meanwhile, on the rough petals, the bees found a foothold and they could settle down, they stopped beating their wings and that's really important because it saves them lots of energy that they would have to use if they're still beating their wings and they want to save that energy as much as they can while they're feeding and getting all that lovely sugary goodness from the middle of flowers. It's intriguing, isn't it? Because the same team, Beverly Glover and Heather Whitney, about three years ago, also published a paper in Nature this time where they showed those same cells also have a role as miniature solar panels. They absorb solar radiation and warm up the petals. This also warms up the nectar and therefore insects get a metabolic reward when they land there because the nectar's warmer and they showed that bees prefer their nectar warm. They'll land on flowers that are warmer compared with colder flowers because that means they don't have to waste energy warming themselves up. It's all good. And I think they have these little tiny hairs on the end of their antennae, that, which we think the bees are able to sense and they actually feel and touch which um, petals are smooth and which are rough. And, and in many cases, they prefer to go to the ones that are nice and rough because they get, get to hold on, a bit like uh, crampons if you're a mountain climber and it's easier to climb up the mountain that way. Rough justice, Dave. Now, for something a bit more technological. Well, I guess that's fairly technological, just a bit more human technological. Now, most computer and TV displays work by actually emitting light. Now, whether this is produced by using electrons hit a phosphor screen in conventional TVs or plasma screens, or from a fluorescent tube behind a liquid crystal panel in a modern LCD display. 
This is great in a dark room, but if you're outside on a bright day, the sunlight completely overwhelms the light from your screen and you can't actually see what you're reading. And also, these because you've got to make all this light, that uses a load of energy, and these displays tend to be quite power-hungry. One solution is to make a display that works like a piece of paper, either reflecting light from outside or not reflecting it, to make up a picture. So no matter how bright it gets, you can still see what you're reading. And you're not producing light, so it uses a lot less power. Um, there are some technologies which already do this in black and white, such as the e-ink in some e-book readers, but they can only change very slowly, and so far they're only in black and white. However, researchers at the University of Cincinnati may have a solution that will give you full-colour uh, video speeds um, with a reflective display. Their technology works by using droplets of ink sandwiched between two hydrophobic surfaces. Normally, surface tension pulls the ink into a droplet, and there's a little um, sort of well for it to sit in. So it pulls itself into a droplet in this well and only covers a very small proportion of the display. So the ink is water-based, yeah, and water- that's why the, the hydrophobic, the water-hating bits push the ink away, is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, so the, the hydrophobic surfaces push the ink away, the ink pulls itself into a droplet in this little well in the centre of the pixel. Um, then if you apply a voltage, it gets a track, um, you, you, you track the ink to the top, top hydrophobic surface. That overwhelms the um, repel- water repellency and it gets spread out over the whole pixel. And so the pixel goes to the colour of whatever ink you've got. Why is this more energy efficient and more effective than the current way of doing it with LCDs? Well, the only energy you've got to put in is enough energy to move this ink around. And you're only moving it sort of microns. So it's very, very small amounts of energy. You're not having to produce any light. And because you're not moving it very far, it can switch uh, at the moment to 50 milliseconds from one to the other which isn't quite fast enough for videos but if they reckon they get the pixels a bit smaller they get it down to a millisecond which is far faster than you need it's only a prototype so far but they've got monochrome displays to work and they see no reason why you couldn't make it to roll up and so in a few years you might see it in your pocket let's hope so because i'm getting a backache carting around my laptop thank you dave Now, it might surprise you to know that around the world, about one person in every 12 is actually living with a chronic infection of their liver, usually hepatitis C or hepatitis B. And those numbers totally overwhelm the numbers of people with pandemics that we're well acquainted with, things like HIV and flu. But not many people actually know about the massive disease burden that's caused by these infectious causes of hepatitis. And so to try and remedy this, on the 19th of May... What's been set up has been called World Hepatitis Day. And all over the world, people will be gathering to try and run events to raise awareness of this. And at the University of Birmingham, researchers, including Dr Joe Grove, will be doing just that. And he's with us now to explain a bit about what they're trying to achieve. Hello, Joe. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us what you're actually hoping to achieve with World Hepatitis Day. Okay, so like you said, World Hepatitis Day will be a lot like World AIDS Day to raise national awareness of the problem. And um, we're holding an event to highlight the interesting scientific and clinical work that's done here in Birmingham. Um, The aim of the event is to raise awareness with the public um, and hopefully reach out to people to get tested. Um, Also to engage with the patient community that's in the UK and to highlight the important work that's done at the university. What will you be doing during the day to tell people a bit about hepatitis B and hepatitis C? So we have, um, we have a couple of MPs, uh, Dr. Lynn Jones, who's our local constituency MP, and Dr. Brian Idden, who's a member of the uh, all-party hepatology group, so they decide liver policy in Parliament. They'll be coming down. We also have representatives from the local press and the local community and the patient community. And we'll be uh, giving them a series of talks to outline the uh, scientific research we do here on hepatitis C specifically, 
but also the work that's done to treat both hepatitis B and C in Birmingham and the clinical research such as clinical trials that are carried out here. And then we'll be giving them a tour of the laboratories and also the um, clinical research facility in the hospital. So let's just look at the actual disease that these agents cause and why you need to raise awareness about them. Why, what are hepatitis B and C and why are they a problem? So, I mean, hepatitis um, simply means an inflammation of the liver. And over a short, if you had an acute hepatitis, that is a short hepatitis, um, that's not necessarily a problem. And viruses like hepatitis A or E um, cause acute hepatitis that self-resolve. Um, hepatitis B and C are capable of establishing a persistent infection. So individuals may be infected um, for, the, for the duration of their life. Now, um, this becomes a particular problem because if you have hepatitis over this uh, extended period of time, you'll start to get other symptoms such as uh, liver cirrhosis and possibly even liver cancer. And this in, fact, uh, this, in the case of hepatitis C, there are up to 500,000 people in the UK with, the, with an infection, but 80% of those uh, do not know about it. So that makes it a major issue because if they don't know it, they can pass it on because these are, of course, blood-borne viruses. You spread them by sharing blood, sharing needles, having sex with people. Sure. So people, if they don't know they've got it, can pass them on. So I guess raising awareness about them in the general population is very important because that encourages people to get tested. Yes, of course. And also um, there are actually treatments. Um, it is you, you, it's possible to treat hepatitis C and you have a reasonably good outcome of treatment with around 50% of patients resolving. Um, however, if people uh, often don't seek um, uh, medical attention until the disease has become particularly apparent and by which stage it's harder to treat. So if there's anyone out there who worried that they may have been exposed, they should get tested and then they've got a much better chance of getting um, resolution to the illness. Thank you very much, Joe. That was Dr Joe Grove, who is a researcher at Birmingham University and he's hosting what will be Birmingham's contribution to World Hepatitis Day. So thank you very much to Joe Grove for joining us on this week's Naked Scientists. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1927 the death of Eduard Bruckner, the German geographer and climatologist who was one of the first to discuss whether changes in climate were due to a natural cycle or down to humans and how this climate change would affect our future. Climate change is a big topic these days, with Oscar-winning films being made about it and the newspapers splashed with stories of how spring flowers are blooming earlier and London will be underwater in 50 years. But the study of global climate, or climatology, was a highly debated subject even in the late 19th century. Bruckner was a central character in the debate over the economic and political consequences of climate change at the turn of the century. He studied the history of changes in sea levels and glaciations as he knew that proof of past climate change points to the possibility of future climate change. With titles like How Constant is Today's Climate and The Influence of Climate Variability on Harvest and Grain Prices in Europe, his papers could have been written in the last few years but were in fact written over a 100 years ago and Bruckner himself has been largely forgotten. He was born in Germany in 1863 and grew up in Russia before going to university in Munich. He completed his doctorate on glaciation, and at the age of 25 he was made Professor of Geography at the University of Bern. 
Throughout his academic life, he published articles in newspapers and gave public lectures in order to bring his ideas on climate variation to the public. The discussions among scientists at the turn of the 20th century were very similar to those had today between scientists and boards like the International Panel on Climate Change. But all the changes and initiatives suggested then for slowing or reversing climate change, such as replanting forests across North America to reduce soil desiccation, were forgotten about in the early 20th century in the face of other global problems, particularly the two world wars. One piece of work that Bruckner is remembered for is his work on what is now known as the Bruckner cycle, a naturally occurring 35-year cycle of periods of wet, cold weather alternating with warm and dry periods. He tried to predict when the dry or wet periods would fall and also predicted that they would have varying effects across the globe on agriculture, immigration and economics. Warmer, dry periods would increase agricultural productivity in Europe whilst decreasing it in larger continents such as North America, making it less likely that people would emigrate from Europe to North America in that period. Bruckner and his contemporaries recognised that there were climate oscillations that occurred periodically, but also that there was progressive climate change, probably driven by human actions such as deforestation. Bruckner felt he had a social duty to inform the public about his discoveries and that scientists had a key role to play in advising governments on changes that needed to be made to help reduce the human impact on the climate. He was well respected in his field and published many papers raising concerns over human impact on climate change that, although over a 100 years old, are still relevant today. Unfortunately, due to the world wars and political instability of the first few decades of the 20th century, he and his work have been somewhat forgotten. He deserves to be remembered as one of the pioneers of an area of science that is now at the forefront of government policies and front-page news stories around the world. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how Edward Bruckner led research into climatology and sadly passed away this week in 1927. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash. Bringing us the latest science news this week were Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. Sarah Castor-Perry took us back in time and we were joined by our guest Dr Joe Grove who explained all about World Hepatitis Day. The Naked Scientist News Flash is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and if you've enjoyed it, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.